0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Dr. Sylvia Terra has struggled with weight issues for much of her life. After gaining a substantial amount of weight following the birth of her children, she committed herself to finding a way to lose the pounds and keep them off. That decision led her to an exploration of what exactly fat is, how it may harm us, and how it actually helps us survive. She channeled her discoveries into her new book, the secret life of fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. KUOW's Ruby DeLuna spoke with Sylvia Terra at Town Hall Seattle on January 9th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Town Hall's Katie Sewell introduces Sylvia Terra and Ruby DeLuna.
1: Sylvia Terra is a biochemist and science writer, She holds a Ph.D. from the University of California, San Diego, and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. During her professional life, she's worked as a healthcare management consultant and with some of the largest biotech companies. She joins us tonight to discuss her book, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Leasted Organ and What It Means to You. And Sylvia is joined in conversation tonight with KUOW's Ruby DeLuna. Ruby is a features reporter at KUOW where she's worked for since nineteen ninety four and she regularly covers healthcare issues and immigration.
2: Welcome to the stage, Sylvia Terra and Ruby DeLuna. Thanks, Katie. And thank you to all. Um, Welcome to uh, Town Hall. And thank you to Sylvia for joining us. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about um, society's view of fat. I was wondering, you know, how did fat get a bad rap? Because there was a time when fat was considered beautiful. In, in some cultures, it was even considered a sign of prosperity. But at some point, fat became the bad guy. Um, studies have shown that it leads to heart disease, diabetes, and other pro, uh, health problems. And health issues aside, um, fat was associated with, um, with a character defect You know, it was a sign of laziness or or lack of self-control. So today we're spending time and money to fight fat. We're trying to shed it, hide it, or shape it with Spanx. (laughs) (laughs) But as more information comes out about fat, we're beginning to see that it's not quite black and white. And so I'm looking forward to exploring this um, with Sylvia Tara. But before we talk about um, your findings, Sylvia, can you tell us why you decided to research
1: that? (laughs) Sure. Um, Can everyone hear me okay, first of all? It's okay? Okay, good. Yeah, no, I decided to to write this book and do this research because my whole life I've just gained weight so easily, much easier than people around me. Um, I've seen other people eat more, exercise less, and stay perfectly thin, and I could never do that. And I went on a number of diets. I worked with personal trainers, and I felt like I did everything, and I'd lose some weight, it would creep back, and sometimes I could even gain weight depending on the diet, oddly. And it was a shock to many trainers as well. And I, I finally got really sick of all of this. I was about to go on another diet, and I said, forget it. I'm not going on one more diet until I understand everything there is to know about fat particularly my fat, my very stubborn fat that will not leave me. (laughs) And so I'm I'm a biochemist by training, and I thought, if anyone can understand fat, I can, right? And so I I spent five years, really, just digging through the literature. I pulled out over 1,000 scientific articles. I spoke to probably dozens, um, probably around 50 researchers around the world about their cutting-edge research on fat. And what I was finding out was just so astounding. It was so surprising. I thought, I have to write this in a book. I have to tell the story of fat and just share it with everybody. And The Secret Life of Fat is that book.
2: And it's it's aptly named. Yes. (laughs) Well, okay, so first of all, People understand fat as this storage of energy. Yeah. That's that's our basic understanding, but it's really much more complex than that. And in your book you, you even said it's it's an organ. Yeah. Can you explain?
1: Yeah, sure. So fat molecules themselves, fatty acids, are a source of energy. They go through a degradative process and they release energy that our bodies use. But fat is tissue collectively around your body, right? It actually serves as an organ. It's not unlike skin. So if you take a piece of skin, it's a piece of tissue. But skin overall in totality is an organ, and fat is the same way. So although fat can be used as energy, it also uh, releases a number of hormones that our body depends on, really vastly depends on. Um, One of those is leptin, and leptin actually has direct control on our appetite and our metabolism. So when we lose fat, we lose some leptin, and our appetite gets bigger, our metabolism goes down. It has all these ways to fight for its own survival, if you will, by controlling our appetite and metabolism. But a lot of organs, uh, other organs in our body depend on it too. Our our bones are highly dependent on fat. Um, Weight is a trigger for strong bones. Reproductive systems, particularly in women, um, really impacted by fat. Um, three pounds can turn it on or off, right? So if you if you get below a threshold, you can actually turn off uh, menstrual cycles and other things. Brain size is linked to fat. And so, you know, because fat is so important and a number of different part, body parts depend on it, uh, nature has ways to protect it. And if you don't really understand what they are, you just end up with weight gain, chronic weight gain every time you lose it.
2: Hmm. So it's, it's it's as if it has a mind of its own.
1: Yeah, fat's a person.
2: It's a person,
1: and you have to really understand its personality, what it's up to, you know, what tricks it has up its sleeve. If you really want to, you know, manage your fat, and I think um, that's kind of how I saw it. Like I saw it just—it was a, a, a war of wills, if you will. You know, fat wanted to stay on, and I wanted it to leave, and I had to get really clever, <laughs> and I had to really, really persist. It was like a very spoiled, rotten child that I had to really put in its place, and. I think if you, if you can understand all that it's really doing in your body, um, and it's doing so much more than storing energy, uh, and you have to really understand uh, how your whole body coordinates to keep your fat on. It does take a lot more persistence in the end, a lot more hard work. I think people are looking for very quick solutions, and they sell. I mean, you, see, you can go to any bookstore, and you'll see all the diet books out there, and it's it's easy. You should never be hungry. You can eat whatever you like, and, and yet somehow your fat will work, and yet we have more obese people than ever in the country, so clearly those gimmicks aren't really working, and I think there's no real substitute for just understanding fat at a scientific level, and being willing to do the work, and be as determined as you need to be to control it mm-hmm.
2: well, I kind of like how you write about fat, it says, it's it's a character fat yeah. is a character in this book and, and it's almost like the, a frenemy, <laughs> you know that, that you need some fat, but yeah. it also
1: if you have too much of it It really works against you. That's right. So there's different kinds of fat in our body, too, and that's what's important to know. So we have subcutaneous fat, and that's the fat that's right underneath your skin, you know, your legs, um, your buttock area, arms. And then there's also visceral fat, and that's fat that's underneath the stomach wall, right? And that can get very crowded, and when it does, it gets inflamed. It actually recruits the immune system into it, and that interferes with insulin signaling, And so when you do that, then you have all these uh, triglycerides and sugars hanging around your blood. You're not responding to insulin as well. And that's the kind of fat that is correlated with diabetes and heart disease. Um, And that's the fat to really watch. That's all the rap that you hear about fat being so dangerous. It's very much around that. Um, You know, there's brown fat too, and that's the type of fat that actually burns energy for heat. So instead of a hoarding, which white fat does, it actually, its main function is, is for heat and to burn energy. And then there's beige fat, which is newly discovered fat. And that's fat that is capable of turning brown upon exercise or cold exposure. Um, And then we have fat in our brains. I mean, our myelin, the the sheath around the axon part of the neuron, that's very much made 85% fat, right? And fat's in every one of our cells around the lipid bilayer, so it has a lot of different functions in our body. Um, And I think that's what you have to be aware of. You can be fat but fit, right? And some people are. Um, They are heavy, but they store it in safer deposits. So subcutaneous fat around your hips you know your arms anything that's right under your skin is actually it's best to not have too much fat but if you're going to have it that's the place to have it Um, I talk about the case of sumo wrestlers which is a curious case of fit but fat and uh, yeah so sumo wrestlers they eat 5,000 to 7,000 calories a day Um, you know usually non-processed food but they eat a lot an awful lot Uh, but they exercise six to seven hours a day So fat has another kind of trick up its sleeve is that it actually releases a hormone called adiponectin. And adiponectin actually helps keep us healthy. It helps clear triglycerides fats out of the blood and bring it into subcutaneous fat tissue where it belongs, right? And it actually helps reduce visceral fat. And exercise promotes the release of adiponectin. So these sumo wrestlers are are gorging themselves. They're eating a lot, but they're exercising a lot, and they're actually releasing quite a bit of adiponectin. And they have low visceral fat. So all that fat in their belly is actually underneath the skin, less underneath the stomach wall. And they're actually quite metabolically healthy. Um, When they come off their their exercise regime uh, and they go back to normal living when they're retired, they actually become unhealthy very quickly. Because they're not exercising as much and then they're eating regular food, they're not, they're not staying with the non-processed type. So, you know, best to not look like a sumo wrestler, really. <laughs> but if you're going to gain weight, um, you know, the key is to really keep it away from your belly as much as you possibly can.
2: Hmm. So um, remind us again, what what makes visceral fat um, not healthy, and and is it is it the same? I know was, I've heard doctors talk about fatty liver. Is is that similar to that concept of you know the the fat being really close to the organ?
1: Yeah, more or less. So visceral fat, um, it sends out a distress signal when the fat cells get really crowded. So it will signal, and when it does that, uh, you know through cytokines and other types of chemical messaging. The body sends immune systems, the immune system cells, so macrophages, TNF alpha, different things will come into your fat. So it's not unlike when you get a cut; your body is sensing something's wrong. There's danger here. You know, your your visceral fat can send out a similar signal to recruit immune cells to it. And when that happens, it interferes with the the sensitivity to insulin. And if you're not sensitive to insulin, then your fats and sugars are floating around. Your cells are not internalizing it. So insulin from the pancreas normally is a signal to your cells to internalize fats and sugars from your blood, internalize them into cells, keep your blood fairly clean. And when you're not responding to it, that's not happening. They're floating around. They're depositing where they shouldn't deposit. So you get Sometimes in your liver, you'll get fat deposited mm-hmm. in your liver. Um, you'll get it in your heart. You'll get it in other places where it really shouldn't be. And that's when it becomes quite unhealthy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that you you write about in the book is is that it's, fat is key for, for uh, reproductive yeah. functions. Um, is that, has that always been a known thing?
1: No, that's a, a great story. Um, I tell the story of Rose Frisch, who was a researcher at Harvard, um, public health and she' actually came upon this she was doing a different type of, of research she was looking at what the calorie needs are um, for the world 's population and she was looking at populations in Pakistan and she noticed that girls in poorer neighborhoods uh, they menstruated later years later than girls from more well to do neighborhoods. And she couldn't figure out why this was, and uh, you know, finally, after after years of looking at this, she determined it was the amount of fat they had. So it wasn't bone, it wasn't age, it wasn't you know anything else about them. wasn't height. It was fat was linked to menstruation and going through puberty. And uh, you know, she actually was ignored for quite a, a long time. People just thought this wasn't important. They thought it was ridiculous. They thought she wasn't you know the right type of scientist to be saying this. And she just kept on, and she faced quite a bit of sexism at Harvard, too. They would they would uh, ask her to take notes for the male sciences. Like, they just totally dismissed all of this. And finally, she started getting some traction when um, reproductive specialists would call her. So OBGYNs would call her and say, you know, I read something about your research, and I have to tell you, I'm experiencing this. So when some women come in, and they're very low weight, like ballerinas or athletes, um, they're not menstruating, so she started getting traction finally. And what she did find out is that there's there's a minimum level of body fat that girls need in, un- in order to undergo puberty, really. And so it's around um, around 17 to 22 percent in there. Uh, and if you don't have that amount, you actually either delay puberty, you don't go through it, or if you're an athlete or or so or a ballerina, you've started it, but now you're exercising and getting your fat off, you'll you'll stop menstruating or you'll have it sporadically. And in fact, doctors I talk to um, in Southern California, you know, where I live, eating disorders are <laughs> quite quite high in that area, and and they'll say the same thing, that they have to try to coax some of these women to get more fat on in order to reproduce, or they have to artificially induce it with uh, exogenous hormones. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And so this, to me, that was um, um, an illustration of how fat has, it serves a role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it helps regulate hormones in a way. It's it tells the body, hey, you know, you're ready now to to conceive or you're, the condition is right, yeah. you know, to have kids in essence. It's
1: a signal of what your environment is in a way, right? So if your environment's unhealthy, there's not food, there's not enough fat. Well, then you can't be bringing somebody into the world just yet. That, that's how I see it anyway. It seems like a signal to the body that all is right in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, we're ready to undergo puberty and reproduce. And uh, you know, it's the leptin it produces, but also estrogen. It's a big producer of, of estrogen as well. And actually, as women go through menopause, they start to depend on fat more for that source of estrogen. Um, and it's at least hypothesized that that might be one reason as get, why it gets harder to lose in women uh, later is because it actually serves a role as a supplier of estrogen.
2: You well, know. speaking of hormones, so um, there it, there seems to be a gender difference. I mean, this is now confirmed. There's a gender <laughs> difference when it comes to fat. Could you talk a little bit? Yeah, about Yeah, and that? I'll tell you, I uh, <laughs>
1: I had to I had to do this research because I am married to somebody, you know, a man who just eats ice cream every day, and he still fits into the genes he did in college. And I actually got so frustrated at watching this, and I said, I'm going to figure out why you can do that. And <laughs> <laughs> And I think every woman in the world has been frustrated at this at some point, and it turns out women are right as usual. Um, We gain weight easier than men. So actually, from the time of birth, really, girl babies have more fat than boy babies do. And I think it actually happens even before in utero that we're just accumulating more fat. And there's a number of reasons for it. Um, one is nutrient partitioning. So as you eat, your body will divert you know, nutrients into different tissues. And there's like a set amount that, that will go into fat. And women partition more of the nutrients into fat than men do, which is probably why from the time they're born, they are actually got a little bit more fat on them. Um, the other thing is that we actually utilize fat more. And this was surprising to me, that at a period of fast, like our overnight fast or after we're depleted from exercise and we're you know, really in a fasted state, our bodies will reach for fat as a source of energy more than men will. Men will actually use protein and glycogen more, which is a carbohydrate store. Um, And you would think this is great news that we're, we're actually using fat. But then we're actually very good at storing it away right after that need is met. So if you exercise one hour a day, that's great. You're burning some fat there. But for the other 23 hours, you're actually storing more fat into your tissue, two to three times more per unit of tissue than men are. So we're very efficient fat storers. Right? That makes sense. Um, It sounds like a terrible thing, but in a way, it keeps women healthier, right? We tend to have a little bit less metabolic disease, a little bit cleaner. We don't have all the metabolic markers that that men do. Uh, Men tend to get more visceral fat, and it takes women longer, like older in years before they'll get that. So there's some benefit for being a little bit fatter. Um, You know, a third part is that we actually – we get hungrier after exercise than men do. And there's an interesting experiment I I talk about in The Secret Life of Fat where uh, there's another hormone called ghrelin that is released from the stomach, and it's a hunger hormone. It makes you hungry. So after women uh, use up, say, a very intense exercise where they do about 600 calories, they will burn off – we have 33% more ghrelin release than men do. So we have, you know, feasibly a little bit more hunger. But even after we eat, we still have 25% more, right? Mm-hmm. So so we compensate. And they, they show this in uh, an experience where that women go to a buffet and they'll eat after they uh, work out. And mm-hmm. women tend to just, they, they'll overcompensate at that time. So not only do we, we store our fat away, right, very efficiently, but we'll eat more too. I think nature wants us to be just a little bit fatter than men, so... I love your fat. <laughs> <laughs> so does that
2: mean then that um, if if we're trying to replenish whatever um, energy that we had used up to do so um, less enthusiastically, pulled <laughs> like yeah, off on the?
1: I think it's pacing yourself. Really, oh. you know, um, stop a little bit earlier if you can. Some of that urge does go away. Um, certainly, eating proteins will help so that you're not going to eat all carbs that are going to be deposited, you know, later as fat or more fibrous foods. I mean, that, that's all things to think about, or just eat slower, right? Just just don't do it as quickly. But, you know, it is interesting because it helped explain um, some of my issues. I worked with male personal trainers trying really hard to get my fat off, and I think they always couldn't understand what was wrong, like why it wasn't working. <laughs> and they would say, well, you just cut out sugar and you'll be fine, and that, you know, it was much harder. And, of course, these guys were six-pack abs and muscle people and... You know, so I think you have to—you have to be wary. There's not one diet that works for everyone, and depending on who you're working with or who's written the diet book that you're reading now, you know, it might not be for you. There's just so many differences among people. Gender's one, but you know, genetics is another thing. I write about um, even bacteria and viruses have a role. Age has a role. Our hormone levels, and it, just depending on where you are, you, if you're like a 50-year-old woman, you can't diet the same as a 25-year-old man. It's going to—you have a very different experience. I do think the more people understand what goes into fatness, what's making you more fat than, than someone else, it, it helps you be patient, um, perhaps less gullible towards all these different diet books and plans out there, and mm-hmm. a little bit more in control. I do think knowledge is power in this if you understand really what goes into your fat.
2: Hmm. You also wrote that um, there, there's a virus or a virus that, that causes obesity. Yeah. That that to me almost sounded like a
1: page from The X Files.
2: Like, wow. So, yeah, so tell us a little bit about
1: that. Yeah, so that's always shocking to people. And uh, it's been known to happen in animals for quite some time. Canine distemper virus was shown to cause fatness in mice in, I think, 1982. Um, Rouse-associated virus causes fatness in chickens, right? And that's been known about since the 80s. But when you tell people that it happens in humans too, they get very alarmed at this and there's a lot of skepticism. But I do tell the story of a scientist named Nikhil Durander who actually had a very fateful, interesting life that I I lay out in the book. And uh, he had noticed that in India, where he was from, that there was an SMAM1 virus that was actually hurting the poultry industry and it was killing off chickens. But interesting, when they actually, uh, you know, dissected these chickens to try to figure out what's wrong, they noticed they were getting fatter. And he was really surprised at this because usually a virus will make you sicker and thinner and then you die. But these chickens were actually getting abdominal fat with this virus. And uh, he became intrigued with this. And he started looking at uh, people who have carried the SMm1 virus in India. And he noticed they had a, a much higher incidence of obesity than people who haven't carried this virus so he was very um you know just intrigued by this and he decided he's gonna he gave up his thriving obesity practice i think he had three obesity clinics and he said he's going to give up everything and he's going to dedicate his life to understanding this and then he uh, packs up his suitcase for himself and his his wife and two kids uh, one kid actually and he goes to the u.s and he thought okay i'm going to get a job and i'm going to discover this and through so many twists and turns um you know he couldn't get a job he ended up looking at sunflowers for two years. He was about to go back to India, and then finally somebody hired him to look at this virus, Richard Atkinson at University of Wisconsin. And he's all excited. He gets to study the virus, but then uh, he can't bring the virus s one into the U.S. The Department of Agriculture won't allow it, so he's back at square one. And miraculously, he finds a virus upon the first you know picking that has the same qualities as this s one virus in India, and that is the AD36 virus, And AD36 actually does increase fatness in humans. And the way it works is that it increases the absorption of glucose from the blood into cells. It increases the amount of fat molecules we make and increases the number of fat cells. So really the fat cells you have are getting bigger and you're creating more of them. Um, and all the while he's discovering this and learning about it, I, I pair this with a patient named Randy who, uh, unbeknownst to him, was infected with AD36. He thinks it was from a farm. He grew up on a chicken farm, and he links it to this, this time where he got scratched by a rooster. Um, and he started becoming just, you know, hungrier, started noticing weight gain, and uh, he really struggled with fat for decades to the point that he was 350 pounds and. uh You know, in his 40s, and he was going through a number of different diet programs and uh, just struggling. And and finally, his doctor recommends this program at University of Wisconsin because it's an educational program. He thinks it's going to help him control his fat. That's where he meets Nikhil Durander, the the person who has studied AD36, and he gets tested for AD36 and learns he's positive for it. And uh, his fat starts to make sense to him finally. Uh, this program, he says, it wasn't blame heavy. They didn't blame you for where you got. And it was more of here's fat, here's how leptin works, here's how set point works. You have this 80-36 virus, this is how it works. And so he becomes uh, just very disciplined, very regimented about his diet. He, I think he felt empowered at that point to really take it on. He felt like he found the right team that didn't put a lot of guilt on him. They educated him. They, they helped him along the way. They would see him twice a week. It was a very, you know, frequently, uh, you, they visited pra- uh, with patients very frequently and, um, he did learn he has to eat less. So having this, this virus doesn't mean you have to be fat or have to be obese. It does mean you have to work harder at being thin. And Randy calls himself not part of the eating world. He's got the world separated into the eating world and the not eating world. And, uh, He's uh, 63 now, I think, and he's about 6'1". He eats about 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day, and he works out regularly, and he's really thin. He's in excellent shape, better than he ever has been, but it's just more care, more effort for him versus someone who might not have these issues.
2: Hmm. I could only imagine having uh, that acknowledged meant something for him that, oh, like... I'm not crazy that yeah. this these series of events happened yeah. after that incident with
1: the rooster. Yeah, but and I think this is where, you know, knowledge is power. So, you know, he probably thought, he, he did think that he was failing on diets, that something was wrong. I think we all feel that way. When we have diets that don't work, it's, I'm doing something wrong, you know, or it's just me. And, and because fat is such a judgment, you, you feel like you're bad, like you're, you're just not doing this right, you're not trying hard enough. Um, And really for him, just just knowing it, I think, helped set him in the right direction where he felt like he knew what to do now. Mm -hmm. And so I think this can be depressing sometimes. You know, I've heard that. that, Some of the, the findings I have in my book about how stubborn fat is, people just feel depressed. And I actually had the opposite reaction. When I started learning all this about fat, I had the same reaction as Randy, I suppose, where I felt like now I get it. Now I get why I gain weight so easily. Now I know what to do. Um, and so, you know, my personal trainer is telling me to eat 15 to 1,600 calories a day or, you know, telling me I'm starving if I don't eat enough. I know it's not true for me, right? And that this is what people, I, I think, have to understand is that every every biology, every every person is different. And just depending on where you are, what you've got for your genes, what age you are, you, you have to really fine-tune a diet to you and hopefully... You know the research I I do helps people feel like they're not crazy, right? If They can start to diagnose themselves a little bit more and understand what it is about them that might be resisting weight loss. Mm-hmm.
2: And the other aspect to that that was um, about your findings that fascinated me was this um, this idea that fat could be a possibly be a form of treatment that it contains stem cells. Right. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah yeah so fat actually it's it's loaded with stem cells, so stem cells come from your bone marrow, they migrate, and it actually houses a number of stem cells and so you know the future of fat might be as a therapeutic oddly enough, all that liposuction we get stored in jars might actually be useful <laughs> for something. <laughs> So, you know, stem cells are these pluripotent cells in our body, and they can morph into different things. They release different types of, you know, chemicals and uh, you know cytokines from them, and they have these, these healing powers, and we know this. We've heard about embryonic research or, you know, stem cells having all this potential, and it might turn out that fat can replace some of that. And so what it 's been used for so far, uh, you know one interestingly, on wrinkles. Um, people in clinics are injecting it into faces, and it, it makes the skin a little bit smoother. but also, I think Rick Perry, the Governor of Texas, used it in his back. Uh, he had a back injury, he had stem cells from fat injected, and he healed you know quickly, very happy with the result and you know for wounds for skin too, using uh, fat derived stem cells um, for treatment, and even skull fractures, I think I read about one research where they used it in a fracture and so it helps heal. Uh, it has, you know, the future of fat might be very different from how we think of it now.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it could be more treasured than. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, you could sell your fat. I don't yeah. know. I could get to that point. <laughs> Commodity. <laughs> and, and so, um, so w- were there any more um, findings or any more research since? Uh, In that area, since your book was published, anything more? Yeah, well, there's
1: interesting ways uh, people are looking at how people can lose weight, because that's the real demand, I guess. Um, So, you know, we talked about brown fat and that it burns calories. And one thing that's being looked at is injecting brown fat into white fat. Uh, So apparently there's someone in Australia who's managed to grow brown fat in a dish, take it out of people, Mm -hmm. grow it, expand the cells, and then inject it back in. And it actually does. It burns calories, and they're able to eat a little bit more uh, <laughs> than they were before with, with more brown fat. I mean, there's more natural ways to create brown fat. Cold exposure is another way our body converts some mm-hmm. of that fat. So, what's to brown. the
2: distinction for for some folks who may not uh, know the distinction between white fat and brown yeah, sure. fat? Is there is it like good fat and bad fat? Well,
1: well, brown fat, um, you know, as I said earlier, burns energy. So, you know, it's a type of fat in our body that actually produces heat. So our white fat will store a lot of calories. That's what it for, it hoards energy. But brown fat has a lot of mitochondria in it, and it produces a lot of heat. So we have it around our clavicle region, around our heart and our spine, uh, key areas in our body. Babies have more of it proportionately than adults do. Um, and so it, it, a number, like on mice, uh, uh, different animal studies where they're trying to actually inject brown fat more into it in the hopes that it helps people burn off you know, more, more calories and that they can lose weight.
2: But as we age, do we lose the brown fat, or does it have to do with lifestyle or a combination of other factors? You
1: lose it from the time you're a baby to adult. I don't know that it declines more mm-hmm. as we age further. Um, you It's a set amount, and things that actually help propagate brown fat are, you know, cold, being in cold. Exercise, interestingly, will help. So the beige fat we talked about that has the potential to turn into brown it turns into brown upon exercise. There's a hormone called irisin when you exercise that will turn beige fat brown. So, you know, exercise is good for all kinds of things, and I write about this uh, in the book, too. Um, one is the adiponectin we talked about with sumo wrestlers, that's really good. It also helps promote growth hormone and testosterone, which are natural fat burners, and those decline with age. Some of the fat distribution we see as, as we age, um, we get fatter overall. Uh, we uh, Changes, I think, women get more fat in their hips um, and their, their lower abdomen and their thighs. Men will get more more of it on the belly. All of that has to do with how our hormones are declining with age. And so really, fat's almost a force of nature as we age. I, I talk about one research done by Paul Williams. He studied 5,000 male runners And he noticed that uh, no matter how much they were running, they were running 10 miles a week, 20 miles a week, they were getting fatter with age. So even really fit, you know, runners were getting fatter. And he determined that the way they could offset this was by increasing their weekly run by 1.4 miles every year. So if a runner was running, you know, 10 miles or, you know, so 20, 20 miles, say, at the age of 30, 20 miles a week, Um, by the time they were 40, they had to be running 34 miles a week. So 1.4 mile every year. And that way they could fit into the same clothing they did 10 years ago. So really, you know, with age, you know, it's not that you're doing something wrong or you're a glutton or something's amiss. It's just that we are, we're prone to get a little bit more fat with age. And I also write about the obesity paradox, where they're finding fat might even be protective with old age. Where you know sometimes in disease or trauma, people who actually have a little bit more fat they do better. They have a lower risk of death than people who are underweight or even normal weight. So some of the diseases fat is thought to cause, like diabetes and, and heart disease, um, you know, when people are actually they have a heart attack or they're actually very sick from it, the heavier ones oddly are doing better. It could have it to do with a lot of things. Maybe they have less visceral fat, more subcutaneous fat. They might be in in better shape overall, but nonetheless, they're noticing they have a little bit more fat. And so fat with age might not be horrible. I think, you know, around the visceral area, it still needs to be controlled. Um, but you know, then there's, there's exercise and other things we can do to try to keep it, uh, in check with age. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, one of the things that you pointed out about, um, fat, one of the characteristics is that, um, when it tries when it's um, when it senses that it's being you're trying to get rid of it, it fights back, that it it even sends out messages as <laughs> if you know, to yeah. kind of protect itself. Right, right?
1: Right. Yeah, so we talked about leptin a bit. Mm-hmm. So our, our fat releases leptin and leptin has control on our appetite, it has control of metabolism. So you normally when we're you know, we have sufficient fat, are all's fine. We're overall pretty satiated and our metabolism is good. When we lose fat, we lose leptin, and you become somewhat leptin deficient. And when that happens, your, your appetite will go through the roof. And they notice that people who have lost 10% of their weight, they're hungrier after a meal than they were before they lost that weight. So even though they've eaten the same amount of calories as before, they feel hungrier. Um, and they do fMRI analysis of their brains, and they notice they're, they're a little bit more obsessive with food. So when they show them images of food compared to normal weight or even obese people who have not lost weight, they react more, so they're excitatory centers in their brains. They, they turn on brighter. And at the same time, their inhibitory centers uh, actually are diminished, so they're overall hungrier with less ability to control themselves. And it's all due to, to leptin, because when they, they replenish leptin, some of that effect goes away when they give them injections of it. Um, and their, their metabolism is lower, too, uh, and they find that after they've lost, you know, say, 10% of their weight, they have to eat 22% fewer calories than someone who's naturally at that weight to begin with. So if someone's uh, 150 and they've never lost weight, they've just naturally been at 150, um, you know, that, that's, and they compare it to someone who was at 170 but lost 20 pounds to get to 150, the person who's lost the weight eats about tw- has to eat about 22% fewer calories to stay at that weight mm-hmm. than someone who didn't diet um and that actually that effect lasts for years. It's been studied for up to six years and uh they've seen that it persists and they're not sure it goes away for everybody. So it's kind of a caloric penalty you have when you lose weight. Uh, and it doesn't matter really how you lose it, because they've seen people get liposuction, they have the same effect. Their the resting the metabolism goes down. And so they have to exercise more. They they had this one study where they separated people who got liposuction from their buttocks and, and their abdomen and they they had one group um, exercise three times a week after that, and one group just go back to their normal life. And the group that went to their normal life, they gained the fat back, but not where it was taken from. It came to a new area. It went to their visceral area instead. So the fat came back, but it came back in a less healthy area. Um, the people who exercised didn't. They, they managed to keep the weight off. And so it really, no matter how you lose your fat, it's trying to come back. And the way you have to counter that is you, you have to fight a little bit harder. So if you've yo-yo dieted in the past, um, you know, you're not imagining it. You really do have to eat less from now on. Your weight really will come back within a year, and that's been studied in a, a number of different scenarios. And so there's, there's a bit of a penalty, and it's just something we have to live with. And, again, many people find that depressing. I found it really empowering because I can now understand why. You know, it's not that all these, these trainers or other people are right and I'm wrong. It's, you know, I get it now. I do have to eat less than more, most people to keep weight off.
2: Well, um, what about, uh, it just seems to be unfair, it it doesn't seem to be fair, (laughs) you do all this work, and you think, boy, um, I'm going to boost my metabolism by working hard, but the body is just, ugh, stubborn.
1: (laughs) Your body likes its fat we don 't value fat, but our body really does and uh, you know it does have pathways to come and another way thing that fat can do interestingly is it can divert blood supply to itself. Mm-hmm. So it's been known about in tumors, you know, in cancers for a long time, that cancers can actually divert veins to grow in its direction and start forming its own blood supply. In fact, there's, you know, multibillion-dollar drugs now, like Avastin and that go out and they stop this from happening. They're anti-angiogenics, and it reduces the tumor. Fat can do the same thing. So when we get, you know, more fat, again, it sends out a signal that it needs oxygen it needs you know nutrition and it'll send out uh, these different type of growth factors that will cause veins to grow in its direction and so it's, uh, you know through angiogenesis it will develop a new blood supply and that becomes another pathway then to deposit calories into fat so you have all this vasculature and all this tissue you know so when you're losing fat you're remodeling your body in a way and you can imagine that's not very easy to do. There's a lot of things that have to happen. Some of these veins will have to be pruned away. You're losing this tissue, and you know, so you have the, this fat in you that you know, once they're a, a, you know, sorry, like a tumor, it kind of wants to stay. It doesn't really want to go. And then your body also uh, doesn't really want to lose the fat. So through through the leptin um, deprivation, it'll make you hungrier and a lower metabolism. So. You just have to understand it. I don't find it to be, you know, too bad now. I think, you know, people do. I think when I first heard about it, I was like, oh darn. You know, <laughs> all that those christmas cookies I'll never I'll never be able to undo it ever. But um, you know, you just no, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get into, I, I guess once you accept that, you know, that this is the way it is, you can decide how fat you want to be. And and again, you can be fit, but fat, and you can come to that acceptance that, well, that's going to be too hard, and I don't want to do that. Um, but I do want to be healthy, so I do want to get rid of visceral fat, but I'm going to accept a certain amount of fat. It's not all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can just target, you know, where do you want to be? And depending on where that is, uh, you might never get back to how you were in your 20s, and it might not be realistic. So I think also having a realistic goal about where you want to be on the fatness spectrum, if you will, that that will help. And then wherever that is, you'll have to do the appropriate amount of work, which is probably more than most people think, mm-hmm. to get to that goal.
2: Hmm. How, how do you hope readers would use your research? How, how, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think, I'm hoping it helps people tweak whatever, first picking the right diet, right? So I think you have to understand who's written the book that you're following. You know, is it, if you're a 50-year-old female, was this written by some 30-year-old trainer, you know, who was Mr. California at one time or something and has a very different body type than you? Because that will factor in how well this will work for you. Uh, Diets have to work for you biologically, so they have to work with wherever you are, you know, um, know, physiologically. But they also have to work for you psychologically. I mean, can you stay on a diet like this? There there are certain foods that I think some people really have to have in order to stay on a diet long term. And does it work for you socially? Can your lifestyle fit this? There are some diets where it's five to seven small meals, two hours of exercise a day, and I can tell you I'll never stay on that diet for very long. I just don't have the time and, and wherewithal for that. So a diet's not just a six-month endeavor where you're going to lose this weight and you're going to pop back, right? We know now it's, it's years. It's at least six years, and it might be even longer where you kind of have to maintain. Maintenance is as hard as losing it to begin with. And so pick a diet, really, that works for you biologically, that works for you, you know, psychologically and socially, something you can stay on for a really long time. So hopefully this book helps you pick it. Um, also, I'm hoping it helps people discern why something might not be working that well. So, you know, lots of books written on insulin, and that's great, but there's other things, too. Growth hormone is something that you can manage with food and exercise. Um, You know, there's the microbiome that we have, and depending on what set of bacteria you have in your gut, you might be getting more or fewer calories out of your food. So eating for your microbiome is another thing you can do. Um, You know, exercise uh, is is something also for promoting adiponectin and, and growth hormone. So really, there's a lot in the book. It's hard to summarize it really in a conversation because it just spans so much. But it's about tweaking a diet and just being smarter, more strategic about diet and exercise. There's not really a magic bullet yet. Right? So there, there's things, you know, for right now, there's gastric bypass surgery, there's liposuction, there's diet pills, there's hormone replacement therapy, and I know people who do that, and, and they quite like it. I mean, it has risk associated with it, but it works. Or there's diet and exercise, and the ones that you can do right away without, you know, um, you know a lot of help is, is probably diet and exercise, which is why I focus on that in the book, because it's the here and now. Now, In the future, there's other things, too. There's possibly leptin replacement So, you know, dieters who've lost, you know, that 10% of weight and their leptin is low, uh, they have experimented with injecting leptin leptin back in, and they become less obsessive about food, they're not as hungry, and their metabolism's higher, but it's not available yet and probably really won't be for the next decade or so. It's, you know, very, very early uh, stages of research. Um, You know, brown fat might be interesting someday or cold exposure, some ways that we do that, but a lot of these things just aren't here yet. And so, you know, I think for if you want something immediate that you can do from home, it kind of gets down to diet and exercise. And it also gets down to training your brain as well. And I do write a chapter, um, you know, on on the self-control muscle. Another uh, interesting thing in in dieters, when they do fMRI analysis of the brains is that people who have successfully lost 30 pounds and kept it off for three years or more, um, they have a a lemon lollipop in their mouth. And then they, they look at what's going on in their brains, and they find that you know they're excited about it, just like people who've lost weight would be. they're more excited by food. But additionally, uh, their self-control centers light up just as brightly. And so these are people who've learned how to override that, you know that desire to eat. Um, they have control over the the organ, the brain organ. People who are normal weight or obese, their self-control centers don't light up as much. They're not as excited by food, but they also don't have that, that self-control um, you know, bulb that goes off as well. So, so really successful dieters, they've they've learned how to stay in control. When they see food, they, they see it, but they, their control self-control centers lights up right away as well. And so that that's a really important muscle to build up over the years because any diet plan, even if, you know, we're, say, eat cake three times a day and that's your big luxury diet, there'd be days you don't want to do that. There'd be days you want, you know, pudding or something else. And so... <laughs> Yeah you know, so even something that seems like a great diet you actually still need some willpower to stay on it. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways to build up that muscle and this is a you know the, the third dimension of being successful on a diet and I, ha- I do have a chapter on that and uh, you can start small I and mean, they they've seen that people who either control swearing for 2 weeks or they they kind of straighten their posture for two weeks, they're actually more successful at handling physical discomfort after this two-week period. They can handle stress better. So something completely unrelated to food, it's just they're, they're learning control in a way. Um, you know, another study where they pay people to go to the gym, and they pay one group to go to the gym once a month, another group to go to the gym eight times a month. The group that's paid to go eight times a month, when they stop paying anybody, that group will just start going to the gym. Right, So you have to like kind of see your brain as part of this, as another kind of aid in all of this. And you can build it up slowly. Um, and you do have to give it a rest, so very much like a muscle. Uh, if you overuse it, you kind of sabotage yourself. And in another study, uh, they had people, they hold a hand exerciser for an hour and a half, and then they, they split the group into two. One goes and watches a happy movie. The other group will go and watch a sad movie and when they come back the group that's watched a sad movie has no energy to hold this a hand exerciser anymore about <laughs> the group that's watched the happy they're, they're at it again yeah. right so you, you have to actually engineer in breaks into a long regimen if you're on it if you want to stay on for the long run
2: hmm. so it, it it sounds like too that um in addition to kind of prioritizing okay what's important to you what's realistic it's also um a lifestyle yeah. considering you know how does this fit with your lifestyle yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned your your personal struggle with
1: that. What did you do? Um, and yeah, so what did you, how did you do it? I'm afraid to talk about this, even <laughs> though I wrote a chapter in a book, because it usually just really is off putting to people. But I, I'll tell you what I did anyway. I have very stubborn fat, and I you know I told you my story up front. It's just you know since a child I would just get fat, and uh, you know after all the research I did, I I could understand why. At least I had a hypothesis of why. I mean, one is I think genetics played in for me. Okay. You know, my mother was very much like this. I used to watch her cook for us and then not eat dinner. And uh, I, thought, I felt so sorry for her. And then little did I know I was going to end up like this later in life. Um, you know, I talked about the thrifty genotype. So there's a group of people, uh, I give the illustration of the Pima Indians, who, you know, they, they survived a n- number of famines through the centuries that they were there. And they evolved a thrifty genotype where they have a set of genes that helps them be very efficient with food, Um, and they actually are very good fat stores. And so this this thrifty genotype helped them survive all this famine. But now that they're in the the time of plenty, you know, and and there's a group of them in Phoenix, Arizona that have been studied, they get more obese than Caucasians in the same area, right? So this their genotype they have actually helps them store fat. And this is true of other populations too. There's a population in Noru where they're finding the same thing. So depending on what you're from, Uh, The lineage, you might be better or worse, fat store. And, uh, you know, I'm Eastern Indian, and there's been a number of famines in in India as well. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if I had the same kind of thrifty genotype that they talk about, you know, with the Indians. My two X chromosomes don't help me either. (laughs) So. You know, being being a woman, I certainly pack on, you know, more fat than my husband ever will. And uh, so all of those things combined. My yo-yo dieting, I've gone up and down. So certainly I have that caloric penalty I deal with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, taking all that, I guess it just helped me understand that this is going to be hard. And that, you know, all these different diets I've been on designed by people who aren't like me. Um, they're either they're male or they're young or they've never had kids or they've never been heavy. You know, no wonder they're not working. They don't really understand what I'm up against. And so I just started being very attentive to what am I eating, how am I exercising, and every day noticing how it was affecting the scale. And so I had to spread. I'm a scientist, uh, you know, so I'm very data-driven. I just had this this, every day. What did I eat? What time did I eat? How many calories was that? When did I exercise? And did my scale move the next day or not? And I finally came to, you know, what was really working or not working. And something surprisingly I can eat, and there's no effect. Um, I can eat small amounts of chocolate. It does nothing to me. I'll Mm -hmm. still lose weight um I could have a piece of white bread it's like a piece of cake you know I cannot eat white bread it'll make me gain weight and there's actually some some research now coming out of Israel where they're they're studying this they're looking at blood sugar levels of people after they've eaten something and they find some people can eat chocolate or ice cream and not get a blood sugar spike and other people can't you know so again we're very individual but what it got down to for me is as a uh, time I ate seemed to matter so if I ate later at night I gained weight there'd be a pound on the scale the next day um, and if I ate, stopped eating earlier in the day, it would burn it off. And so I started doing intermittent fasting, um, which is I don't eat for about 16 hours. So I stop eating around 3 o'clock or so, and I won't eat again really till 9 o'clock the next day. I found it burns right through really stubborn fat. Mm. And uh, you know, as far as exercise, I added that in, and it's good to add that in slowly because it does spike your ghrelin levels like we talked about, the hunger hormone. And so if you exercise too much too fast, you'll overcompensate. So I added that in slowly. But then I discovered, you know, things that helped me. I think release testosterone, growth hormone, Uh, high-intensity interval training was really good. So that's when you go, you know, very powerfully, you know, very strongly. You exercise for 20 seconds, you know, rest for about 10 seconds and do that for about 8 cycles. And amazingly enough, it also burned off fat. So, you know, I, I do eat probably less than... Um, first of all, most people don't have to do what I do, so I just want to make that clear that this is not the solution for everyone. This was it for me. I mean, I'm petite, um, and I have the, the issues we talked about, but mostly it's, it's intermittent fasting, and I added you know hit onto it, and that seems to, to keep weight off. Um, And, you know, I lost 30 pounds, uh, ultimately, and it's been off for years now. And uh, actually, my editor, when I handed in my manuscript, he also lost 15 pounds just from reading all the stuff about fat and understanding his fat. And uh, he's also kept the weight off. So uh, hopefully, you know, just from reading, you can lose 15 pounds.
2: (laughs) Well, so I'm curious. I mean, um, some articles, there have been articles written about Fasting in yeah. general, how it would it 's a good thing that there are some positive benefits in that it kind of gives the system a rest, but in, in, in your case with intermittent fasting, what's the idea behind that?
1: yeah, so um, s- growth hormone peaks at night right, and that's a great great fat burner, it's something that declines with age, and so when you eat, actually it starts to mitigate growth hormone. Also, there's that hormone ghrelin, the hunger hormone. It's actually an agonist for ghrelin. So, so if you have, if you can stand it, if you're hungry, it actually promotes the release of growth hormone, which then burns fat. So, the longer you can keep this, you know, overnight peak going, you know, it actually will start to burn some more fat for you. And it's not easy to do, I'll admit. But I did get used to it in the end. Um, you oh. know, like I'm not that hungry at night anymore. In fact, when I eat, it feels odd. I almost feel too full. So as hard as something might seem to go on, um, you actually can do it. You'd be surprised actually at how much you can do. Um, and I feel comfortable now. You know, I, I can feel as I start going into fasting hours, I feel kind of calm and you know, and all that. And of course, after Christmas, I've not been fasting as much as I used to. But <laughs> you know, but overall, you can you can endure. You can get used to these things that seem like they're you know you'll never be able to do it. And so I just tell people like you know, don't despair. If you really want to lose weight. It might be harder than you think, but you can absolutely do it. And you, might, you probably don't have to do anything as extreme as I did. I just have very stubborn fat. But whatever it is, um, you know, you can restrict that 22% fewer calories you might have to eat from now on uh, t- entirely possible mm. right, to get. In. And the other thing to think about is really the microbiome. That's another thing I learned is that, you know, depending on, on the bacteria you have, you could be getting more or less calories from your food, right? Bacteria, they have enzymes we don't. They actually help us digest foods, and they turn them into simple sugars. So the other thing I started doing was just eating a lot of really fibrous foods, a lot of kind of prebiotic foods. And so when I do eat, you know, lunch, my main meal, uh, it's usually a a pretty big salad that will fill me up. And I notice also uh, pounds will leave me pretty quickly when I'm on that. So I'd say just be really attentive. Keep a log. Uh, And that's actually one of the qualities of successful dieters. They they log their food all the time, and they log their activity. And they they rarely go off their diets. They're usually on, or they snap back on quickly. And just start to monitor for yourself, you know, just like that study from Israel. What is it that's affecting you? Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll start to see things that you can eat and get away with, other things that you can't eat and you can modulate. I kind of invented my own diet in a way. Um, And, you know, I think people can too. You can at least modulate the one you're on to try to make it work for you if it's not.
2: Hmm. Because, like, Mark Mark Bittman did his... um what is it? Vegan before um, six? Is that right? So, and then in your case, you have you you stop eating at a certain time, yeah. right? So, like early after you yeah know, three three after, yeah yeah. So, yeah yeah okay so yeah. that's...
1: But I know people have done it differently too. They'll yeah. eat at night and then they won't eat again really until you know four o'clock or whatever three o'clock or something the next day. So there's different ways to do that. Yeah.
2: Okay, but what what about when you're traveling like yeah. now? <laughs>
1: I'll gain three pounds from this trip pretty much, yeah.
2: (laughs) Are you able to stick, or do you, is it harder? to? It's
1: certainly harder, right, especially if you're changing time zones and all of that. So, like, I'm not, um, I come off as I need to. I I think if you're about 80% adherent to your diet, it can do you some good. If you start being 50% adherent, you're not going to get the benefit. You'll do a lot of work 50% of the time and not reap the reward. But, you know, I eat Christmas cookies like everyone else. There's no way I'm getting through Christmas without (laughs) indulging here or there. Um, And the key is just to get back on. So there's, uh, you know, another quality, which is uh, dichotomous thinking, which is what people have to be careful of. And this is where, and this is particularly prevalent in women, but men have it too, where if you make one mistake, you feel like there's no use in trying again. And so it's like kind kind of psychology. If I didn't get an A, it's an F. Like nothing else matters except an A. Anything else is an F. And people do this with dieting quite a bit. Like if they if they messed up on a day, like, well, what's the point? I might as well have, a, you know, a beer tomorrow too or another cookie tomorrow. Or, you know, they'll, they'll go down this slippery slope. And, uh, you know, people who do this. are not only prone to regain weight. They're more prone to depression. They're more prone to feeling out of control. And so it's another one that, you know, it's fine. I go off, you know, here and there. I travel. I, you know, I have kids. Sometimes I, I go out with them. But just get back on and try to be 80% at least adherent to a diet. And it's what some of the uh, obesity experts I, I interviewed, you know, also said that, you know, people go off all the time. The key is really to get back on as quickly as you can. Hmm. Yeah.
2: So now that you've
1: found a way to, to control it, to,
2: to deal with your stubborn fat, how would you describe your, your relationship with fat?
1: I love my fat. (laughs) I appreciate my fat. Like, I realize all these years I've been yo-yo dieting and, you know, my teenage years where I did starvation, I'm like, I've been torturing my... I've been mean to it, actually. Like, it's been there trying to help me. It's been producing leptin. It's been producing estrogen. It's been producing adiponectin. And all this while, like, I I just really never knew. And so I think we have a, a balanced relationship where we appreciate each other a little bit, but we're also... Aware of the power the other one has, so I'm aware of the power my fat has. I know it's ready to come back if I slip up too many times, but I think just through you know the strength and power I have put into losing it, it, it must also be aware that you know I'm another force to be reckoned with as well. So you know it, it's a comfortable, more balance. And for me, some of this was more about getting back into control of my fat. I mean, as we age, I gain weight as I started a career. You know, I had a kid gain 10 pounds, another kid gain another 10 pounds, and Everyone splurges on something. My thing to splurge on was these beautiful, beautiful dresses that were hanging in my closet, and I couldn't wear them anymore. Mm. and uh, they weren't cheap dresses, and it, you know finally got to a point where you know I'm approaching fifty and I might never wear those dresses again. And, you know, so, so it was, you know, do I want this life? Fat is controlling me now. It's controlling my life. And, you know, it's just a matter of being tired of it. Like, I will have control. How, how dare something invade me and have this control? So it kind of gave me the determination to I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to understand it. And so I think, you know, now I, I appreciate it. I don't need to be as thin as I was in my 20s. I don't feel that at all, you know, because fat is important, and I've learned that. You know, at the same time, I realize how hard it is to really keep in control how much work I have to do every day. And so it's a comfortable balance now. It's a, it's a more respectful relationship between the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> a détente. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All
2: right. Well no, I and I've I've learned a lot too uh, about fat. Um, okay. the how wily it is and and um, how useful It can be. Yeah. So, yeah. um, So, those are my questions, and I'd like to open this up now to questions from the audience. And as Katie pointed out, there are two mics. Um, So, for those of you who have questions for Sylvia, please um, come. Good evening. Hi. I
3: think I have that virus. Do you you have any information on the role of protein along with the fat, increasing protein helps weight loss?
1: Well, I think it helps stave off hunger for sure, right? So if we eat all carbs, um, you know, we inter- it provokes insulin and we clear it out of our blood very quickly and then we're hungry again, right? And so you kind of promote this vicious cycle, vicious cycle of you have insulin, you have carbs, and then it's cleared and you're eating more carbs again. So protein will last a little bit longer um, in your blood. It will make you a little bit fuller. Fiber will too. Um, You know, there's all these different diets out there, and one's the ketogenic where it's all protein and fat and no carbs at all. And there's others like the pasta diet where it's entirely carbs. And you can do either, and I've known people who have been successful on both. What you can't do is you can't combine them. You can't have lots of carbs and lots of protein and fat. That is a recipe for, you know, high-fat storing. So, you know, pick, like I said, everyone's individual. Pick the one that works for you socially and psychologically and for your body. See if it works. And, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, so... But balance, I think if you're heavy carb, you know, it, it's just harder. I do, I do find, at least for myself, I get hungrier on heavy carb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
0: Thanks for your talk. Sure. Um, my question is, um, what is the good balance of fat consumption? It, mm-hmm. And I guess be, the question behind that is, if I eat fat, am I going to gain fat? Yeah. If I eat fats in my diet, am I going to gain fat? Is there any connection there?
1: I, there is. A dietary fat can be deposited into fat. There is that pathway where it goes directly into fat. But I think what you're seeing now is it's, it's more of a move away from high carb because that hasn't been working. And fat actually does help you keep, stay full a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, um, what was it? The zone diet, I thought, actually did this quite well. That was from Barry Sears a while ago, where I think it was around 30% fat or so. And people were satiated for longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing going on with all this, this research on fat now is they're finding saturated fat might not be as bad as we thought it was, right? It's actually helping increase HDL levels, which help actually clear out, you know, the bad cholesterol um, and things like that. So, um, you know, again, I don't think you can buy, you can have like cake, uh, you know, you can't, you're like your fat and your cake and eat it too. Like, you know, your fat and the sugar together, because that is a recipe for, I think, you know, a lot of bad things, but I think in proportion, you know, 30% fat is kind of what I aim for. And, uh, you know, from what I've read from others, that seems to be, it works in that it helps you stay satiated for longer without any ill, uh, health effects. <laughs>
0: Some fats that are better, some fats yeah. that are not as good?
1: For dietary fat, you mean? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And, and I don't go as much into dietary kinds of oils and fats and things like that. Um, there's some good books written on it. But, you know, olive oil is one that I use a lot. But I, I haven't adopted this lard as good yet. Um, I know that's being talked about now, but saturated fats are really good. And I guess I'm still not quite as comfortable with that. Um, I think you can do it if you're kind of ketogenic and you're all protein and fat because then you're not bringing in the, the big insulin component. Um, so I, I'm still more onto olive oil and some butter is what I've been using. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Good question. Hi, right, sir.
3: Well, I like what you've said. It's quite complicated, <laughs> and uh, and I I also like your tips about um, uh, intermittent fasting and uh, uh, high intensity exercise. I guess I'm uh, in my mind trying to um, simplify it. That the um, the dangerous fat is the visceral fat. And uh, we just heard from uh, Gary Taubs on Friday that uh, the case against sugar, that uh, sugar is the um, uh, motivating force behind uh, metabolic syndrome and therefore visceral fat. So maybe the, in addition to everything else, this, the simple thing to do would be to just eliminate uh, all sugar and most carbs, and that that would be the, the simple approach to uh, uh, the whole fat problem.
1: That's great if you can stay on that diet, right? So I've done low-carb diet, and they yeah. work. I lost weight, no doubt. Um, and mm-hmm. this is where this uh, you know, biologically, psychologically, socially comes into play. Psychologically, I, I didn't want to stay on that diet. I would want to go off every once in a while, and then I would gain a lot of weight all of a sudden, really quickly. And so, you know, I think that's a fine, you know, so plan. What, what
3: was the temptation? What was the trigger to go I, off?
1: I like sugar. <laughs> well, okay, that's. that's I exactly, like sugar. That's um,
3: exactly what uh, uh, Talb says. It's. Uh, that sugar is an addicting uh, substance.
1: It, it is. It probably is. I'd probably be a little bit, you know, five pounds lighter if I would lay off of it. But for, for me, for my life, if I'm going to stay on something, for, you know, for a long time, I like a little bit of chocolate here and there. Um, there's actually some, some research I did. Because I, I know when I was, I was fasting, I was getting so starving at points. And I noticed if I ate just a little bit of sugar, it would just, that would go away. I'd be fine. And I'd be able to get back to work and not be obsessive. And there's actually, um, you know, some uh, insulin somewhat satiating. So if you do produce a little bit of insulin, it actually helps with satiation. Mm-hmm. And so for me, even though I eat really healthy, I'll eat a big, you know, a salad with protein and some fats in there, I'll eat like four gummy bears after it because it will help keep me full for hours. And so... I don't believe in one diet fits all, and I, I really am against that. If it works for you, no sugar, you know, high-protein, low-carb. It's a great diet. It's a great plant, very sound scientifically. But at least for me, you know, socially, um, psychologically, I just didn't want to be on something like that. I, I kind of like sugar here and there. And I don't have a lot, but I, I have a little bit, but I don't really want to give it up.
3: He seems to think that there is no downside to artificial sweeteners and that, mm. uh, and that you could use... So if, if it's the sweetness, uh, you could substitute uh, artificial sweeteners um, in place of sugar, and that there should be no downside.
1: I've heard differently from, you know, just observations from doctors who, who treat patients. Um, I talk about with Michael Danzinger at Tufts University, and that's one of the things he'll ask people to eliminate if they're plateauing. Um, so I don't know that that's you know scot free necessarily artificial sweeteners. I think on Atkins diet too, if you were having a lot of sucralose, that would be one of the triggers. They would say to, to drop some of well, this. Well, I asked
3: him about it. He said that uh, nobody's done the studies, hmm. <laughs> and, and probably nobody's likely to do the studies.
1: Yeah, m- maybe not. I mean, but again, keep your diet log. If it works for you, you know, I'd say keep it. I know sometimes uh, some things well, I like guess,
3: uh, I guess I would ask you biochemically. Yeah, uh, with artificial sweeteners is there any downside
1: I can only tell you empirically I think there is I mean for me I know I don't lose as much I know from the doctors I've spoken to who treat they they also notice that people don't lose as much weight if they have a lot of artificial sweetener so I don't have a a, a researched answer to give you but I can tell you from what I've heard my own experience I think there is I know I don't lose as much if I take a lot of diet sodas and things like that in fact I start gaining weight
2: okay that's important to know okay Thank you.
1: Hi. Hi. Uh, I read this book a while back called Fit or Fat, and it said that if you work out in the water, then your fat level will increase. Is that more brown fat to keep your body warm, which would increase metabolism, or is it more white fat, which would maybe not be so good? Well, is it cold water or warm water? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the cold water. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's maybe what they were getting at is the increase in, uh, amount of brown fat you get if you're exposed to cold. Where they, I don't, I didn't read the book. I mean, were they saying that your your regular fat will increase if you exercise in water?
2: Yeah, it did say that. They didn't know about brown fat so much and white fat at the time. It was yeah. an old book,
1: so. All right. Well, they I, did a little. Like it, they said, the brown fat was in the back. Yeah. Here mm-hmm. and that it kept you warm and increased your metabolism. But I don't think he said anything about swimming and. Brown fat versus white yeah. fat. Organs. My guess is they were getting at brown fat, maybe even not not you know stating that so explicitly, but uh, yeah. Cold water. Um, it's funny, is my husband will do this every day now, since I've done this research. He'll jump in our very cold pool, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. He's skinny. I don't know why he bothers, but but he claims that <laughs> that he can eat. He eats a lot now, and he's he's not gaining weight. From, you know, so I don't know. We try it. It's it's torturous, but it might be good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi.
0: Um, I have a, a, another question about exercise. You mentioned high-intensity exercise, and, you know, I've done a lot of that in my life, but um, as I age, it's becoming much more difficult to do. So how important is that in this whole dietary and exercise package yeah. to control your weight.
1: So food is 80% of controlling your weight, really. You know, it's hard to get the other 20% without adding exercise, but you could do it with with food if you wanted to, food alone. I mean, I think exercise is good for so many things as we age in particular. So, you know, it's good for keeping our, our hormones going. It's good for keeping our bone strength uh, going, too. I know a hit is hard, right? It's a, it's a huge, you know, tax on your body. I like it because it's fast, and I can squeeze a half-hour work in or workout, you know, if I add HIT. But if you have more time, you could just do other exercise for longer. I mean, they've seen people. I think it was a it was a two-hour ex, aerobic exercise um, stint, but their their growth hormone increased substantially after that. Um, adiponectin. If you can somehow run or jog twenty miles a week, that helps adiponectin. So they're not dealing with HIT much at all. Um, so you don't have to do HIT necessarily, but you could pick a different exercise, maybe that's a little bit less demanding.
0: What is HIT you're saying?
1: Oh high intent oh. high yeah, that's the acronym Sorry, for it. yeah. Got okay. It. Got it. Okay. Okay, Thank okay you. sure. Thank
3: you. Hi. So, so I'm curious about how you have this discussion with your physician. So my doctor says I need to lose forty pounds, but that's what I weighed in college. And so I don't I can't have an intelligent conversation with him saying I'm not gonna weigh less than I weighed in college. But I don't want to say he went to med school and I didn't. <laughs> so I don't understand how I even have the, this, this
1: conversation you with know. Well, you could give him my book for a start <laughs> and he could read it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because. Um, you know, it's fine. One time I, I had a high A1C level, and I think my doctor said to me, Well, lose weight and come back in three months, right? And I mean this is what, what doctors do. They're not necessarily educated or you know trained for obesity specifically, they're generalist. But when I talk to, to doctors who specialize in diabetes and, and managing weight for patients, um, it's a whole different a whole different understanding. Once you're really in the trenches and you decide you're gonna focus and this is what you do. Um, and so you could find maybe a different doctor who is more of an, a weight reduction specialist. Like they really focus on diabetes and obesity. They're not as prevalent as we might like. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, just maybe tell your doctor the plan that you want to try and just make sure that it's something that can work for you. There's nothing about your health that's, that's not going to work. But I well, think how, how do I know
3: when I'm I- hitting the, the diabetes boundary, even? I mean, I, I, mm. I, you're saying that you're, you've accepted a certain level, but I, yeah. I don't even know how to say. You know, once Dave hits 250 pounds, he's, he becomes diabetic. I don't I don't know how that's... Well,
1: you probably have a metabolic panel you can have done where they'll look at your, your different, um, uh, you know, uh, levels of, of various chemicals in your blood, and they'll tell you if you're pre-diabetic or, you know, at risk of it. Um, A1C is one, cholesterol, triglyceride levels. They'll look at all of those different things, and so, okay. you know, that can guide you. But, you know, as far as, like, what diet plans can work, um, it's hard. And, and for a lot of different specialty kind of diseases, generalists generally don't have a ton of education. I mean, even for other things other than the fat, I know I've brought in papers to my doctor, you know, and I've talked about, and I'm a scientist, so I know where to look, and I can do it, but anyone can do it. And you can just have a discussion, and, you know, kind of forces them to read it <laughs> and, and take a look and, and answer you intelligently rather than some automatic answer. Okay? Kay? Okay. Yeah, Great hi I'm so i 'm slowly embracing menopause and um, i 've done a lot I'm, i 'm just wondering how much you can affect your body shape by by diet because i 've been reading over and over that i'm because i 've usually been a kind of an hourglass and I, overnight i 'm turning into apple and I know everybody 's looking at me right now <laughs> but it, it, so is can i can I only hope to get to be a small apple? i 'll stay a small apple or I, how much can I control this with diet. It's, it's funny. Our, our hormones have such a strong effect on us. I actually um, talk about this research with transgenders, right, where they're, they're, they're uh, transitioning over, and they have the men who start taking testosterone blocker and, and more estrogen, and they start getting fatter overall, right, as, as they let go of testosterone, and they start getting it in their hips and their you know their buttocks and thighs, like where women usually get it. Mm-hmm. Um, And then they have the uh, female to male ones who will take more testosterone, and they'll they'll lose weight overall, but they'll get more gut fat. They'll get more visceral fat. And so our hormones really dictate where our fat is in our body. And I think at at this point you have to, you know, as we age, you have to get some fat acceptance because it's going to be really hard, and you might not be worth it. I mean, maybe you can do it. I also write about a a bodybuilder in in my book, a female bodybuilder, who was dead set on having as little fat as a man to get down to 15%. It was an all-day effort for her, right? I mean, she had to plan her meals. She had three hours of exercise a day, and she got what she wanted to. And I'm sure you could, too, but then you have to ask yourself, is that worth it? How bad do I want that? And so, um, yeah, I think I've learned to accept, you know, some of mine. Um, I'm not young. i got two kids, and, you know, it doesn't look like it did before, but it's healthy, and it's good enough. I fit into the clothing I want to fit into. And so, yes, you can get there. Um, you'd have to devote a lot of time and effort to it, and I think at some point you'll find a balance of how you like to look and what's healthy for you and how you want to live. Thank you. Sure. You've talked a lot about the individual nature of all this and trial and error and I work with athletes and many of them are trying to figure out what macronutrient breakdown is ideal, particularly for endurance athletes. So my question is if um, they're impatient or we've tried a bunch of things and still they want a more definitive answer, do you think some of the genetic testing options that are out there are legitimate and are they worth the cost And if it is cost prohibitive for someone, is there an easier way to explore those questions without spending four grand on it? Yeah, so the genetic test, they cover some of the obesity genes, but not all. Like, they'll they'll track a couple of them. But you could have a whole bunch of different – so, like, a Pima Indian might go and get their genetic test, and they might not find everything that they have. There's all just different uh, genes that are just not as well studied. And it doesn't change what you have to do in the end. You know, if you find you have this genetic profile, you still have to eat less and exercise more. So, I mean, you could spend money. It might not answer your question completely. Um, and even if it, if it does, it kind of doesn't change what you have to do in the end. So, you know, I'm not sure how to answer. If someone's really curious, they can go through this and they might find like that kind of light, you know, of what their, their issue is. But in the end, um, I think... The pencil and paper, in your log, and what you weigh, and what your muscle mass is—that actually can do more for you than getting all of these fancy tests. Okay,
2: I think we have time for two more questions.
1: Okay. Hi, uh, my
2: question is: uh, Does sleep has anything anything to do with fat? And if
1: if it does, and um, you know how? <laughs> I actually write about this, too. I write about a ton of things. And so, um, yeah, so sleep actually is really good for losing weight because when we don't get enough sleep, we have higher ghrelin levels, the hunger hormones, so you're more hungry overall. Um, and also leptin is tied to sleep. We're overall higher leptin when we get sufficient sleep. So, you know, I think of sleep and obesity, that's been linked together, sleep deprivation, obesity. And people who do night shifts, they get, like, a weird sleep pattern. They're also very prone to obesity. And so certainly, you know, getting, it's, it's actually, I'm glad you brought it up because I, I didn't mention it before, but getting an adequate sleep actually will help you not be as hungry uh, overall. Okay. And lastly. Okay. Hey. Hi. Hi.
2: Um, so from, from what I've read, uh, we lose about 1% of muscle per year after the age of 30, um, which many scientists agree lead to uh, weight gain and increase fat as we age. Um, couldn't the proper solution or the simple solution just be maintaining muscle mass as we age in, as opposed to going on diets and doing all that?
1: Well, that's a diet in a way, right? If you have to exercise more, like it's a regimen that you have to, you have to stay on, right? So, I mean, that might be the case, but a lot of that is because of, of hormone decline, right? So, you know, as we lose testosterone, we lose muscle tone, we lose muscle mass, we lose uh, lean muscle uh, tissue as well. In fact, um trying to think there was one, one study Yeah, where they actually it's kind of related, but they, they had two groups of men, one who did exercise three times a week, um, you know, hours of exercise. Another group who did no exercise, but they got testosterone injections. And they found the ones who got testosterone injections actually built up more muscle mass and lost weight compared to people who were exercising, right? So some of the real reason that we're losing that is it's really hormone decline. And you can try to compensate with exercise. I don't know that you get it back fully. And I, I don't know that that's been completely studied, that kind of really long study that looks at that. So I think exercise is good for, for all kinds of reasons, right? It's for building up lean tissue. You know, it's for your adiponectin levels, your hormone levels. Um, it's associated with lower dementia incidence. I mean, there's so many reasons exercise is good. So I think, it, you know, it's a fine plan. I don't know that I would, I would hold for promise that it's going to make me look like I did when I was, you know, 25 or anything like that without other, you know, dietary intervention too. Okay, Sure. Good.
2: Well, thank you so much for all your questions, and thank you to Sylvia Terra for spending the evening with us and talking about fat. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Accept <laughs> our fat. <laughs> okay. Thank you.
0: Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Dr. Sylvia Terra is the author of The Secret Life of Fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. She spoke with KUOW's Ruby DeLuna at Town Hall Seattle on January 9th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.